This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, a long-lost shipwreck has been found off the coast of Thunder Bay, but not Thunder Bay, our Thunder Bay, the city, Thunder Bay, the Thunder Bay, that's in Michigan, in the south end of Lake Huron, Stephanie Gondula, Resource Protection Coordinator at the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, tells us more about their incredible discovery of a shipwreck and how many of these boats are sitting at the bottom of the Great Lakes in their own area. They figure it's 100. We rewind to the year 2000 or so with Flashback Friday, Throwback Thursday, and Mom's Minivan, Ryan's Mom's Minivan, in fact, music commercials and culture that defined the turn of the century and the years that followed, plus are you okay with smart cars, the small ones, or just ones that are smart? What about dog parks and barking? All of that and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Did you know there are two Thunder Bays? I did not until this conversation. I can tell you that much. And did you know that our Thunder Bay is quite far away from the American Thunder Bay? That's where we're going is down to the American Thunder Bay. It is down on Lake Huron. It's, um, I don't know, if I had to guess how far north of Detroit you had to drive, uh, two, three hours, two hours, two hours. More than that. Is it really? About four and a half hours. Yeah. yeah north of th- north of Detroit, four and a half hours. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, that voice you hear, by the way, is Stephanie uh, Gandula. 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 Uh, You're- Gondula. Gondula is perfect. Gondula. <laughs> See, I was going to say, well, it's American. I was stereotyping you because Americans typically (laughs) typically simplify their names. Uh, So Gondula is uh, is fancier. So we'll go with Gondula. Um, Also, it's your name. Uh, Stephanie joins us to talk about shipwrecks today. Now, Stephanie is in Alpena, which is on Thunder Bay, sort of Thunder Bay, the bay, the water place. And there's Thunder Bay State Forest there. There's all things Thunder Bay, which is not our Thunder Bay. That's further up and to the left. That's um, right. Shipwrecks. Yeah, much larger. Yeah. Much well, larger yeah. We're you're a small town. Thunder Bay's a, a city, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, shipwrecks is why we're here. Um, tell us what you do. Well, I have a really fun job, I think, and I am a maritime archaeologist. So I study things that humans have made that are now underwater. Usually that's shipwrecks, but it's not always shipwrecks. Um, sometimes there's airplanes. Sometimes Um, fishing traps, um, sometimes old docks. But like you said, what we're here to talk about today is shipwrecks. And where I'm based to do my job of maritime archaeology is in Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. So it's a federally designated area um, and it's 4,300 square miles. So we've got lots and lots of shipwrecks. There are a lot of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes in general, Canada side, American side. We don't, I think we take for granted because they're lakes that they're just these pretty pristine places that we can go to the beach and and play some volleyball. Um, They are violent at times. They have a wicked history. Uh, There's so much more to the Great Lakes, I think, than we understand. Oh, 100%. And whether we're talking about the cultural resources and archaeology, like shipwrecks, or the natural resource, you know, it's 20% of the world's supply of the fresh water, 
right here in the Great Lakes. So not only is it uh, rich with history and treacherous sometimes, but it's also vital to our planet. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, how'd you get into archaeology, in particular archaeology of things that did not go well? <laughs> That's a great question. And you know, I don't always have uh, the same answer for that one because I'm not really sure. I am actually from Montana, so um, bordering lovely Alberta. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I tell people I'm an underwater archaeologist and I'm from Montana, they're like, what? Yeah, how, did, that how did that happen? <laughs> but we do happen to have water in Montana. Um, but I've I've been a scuba diver for a long time, and which is one of the main tools underwater archaeologists use to study shipwrecks. And um, I thought, well, gosh, how do I uh, continue diving and also uh, make a living at it mm-hmm. and learned about the field of underwater archaeology. So that that's kind of the story. I love the outdoors, love history, and love the water and ended up in, in the beautiful Great Lakes. I almost caught a turtle in Montana oh. fishing. <laughs> oh. I know. I was like, I was trying to fish, and there was like a fish biting at my lure, and then all of a sudden there was a little turtle swimming after it, and I was like, no, 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 don't bite it, don't bite it. He didn't bite it. It was all good. <laughs> I'm glad. Little turtle man. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, he's hungry, little bugger, though. Um, so, okay, so the reason why we're here is y'all have found a uh, something new, a long-lost ship, and um, it's a, a mysterious storyline. It's okay. a storyline that has not really been understood. And I, if I understand this correctly, you're fine that you and your, your folks have, have got there. It really does confirm a lot of things. You know, it, very, very true. And we were just talking about how many shipwrecks are out there. In fact, just like you said, across the Great Lakes, people estimate about 10,000 wrecks. We have identified, um, the people that came before me and the community here in Northeast Michigan have identified dozens and dozens. In fact, the one we just discovered, the Ironton, is number 100. So when when you say, you know, it's given us some insight, it it definitely has. But there's lots and lots of shipwreck stories to be told, the ones that have been known about for decades. But yes, back to the Ironton, what I like to think the insight that this provides to us living today is is a little peek into the daily lives of regular people like you and I, like our listeners that really aren't represented in the history books. These, these are working vessels. All the wrecks in Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary are commercial working vessels that worked for decades of building up the maritime economy here in North America, Canada and, and the US. And you don't you don't really read about these vessels and they're not famous war vessels. They're they're like the semi trucks and the, the rail cars of today. And so we have a little insight into the lives of these regular people. It's, it's pretty special. I always find it weird to be talking about maritime anything so far inland. Right. In Canada, when we talk maritimes, we are speaking of PEI, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. I mean, that is our maritime region that we just call the maritime. So I do get thrown off a little bit when we talk about it this way. But you talk about working ships. When I lived in St. Catharines, I lived right on the canal. And we often misunderstand how big some of these ships are that go through there today. Now, the original canals, they weren't very big, but they the boats of their time were pretty grand. And today, like these are big working boats. These are uh, mineral boats. 
and mm-hmm. energy boats and just freight and all kinds of things that are moving up and down. Rewind in time, you take away some of the grandeur, at least the the stature of some of them. But these are still not small boats, these working boats you talk about. These, these weren't like little dinghies. These aren't little fishing boats. That's right. The Ironton was a wooden schooner barge measuring 191 feet in length. Yes, that's so, big. Yeah, that's big. But And there were lots and lots of them. And I like that you said, you know, we still have these freighters working the Great Lakes today. And it still is a vital part of our global economy. It's just when we look out and see a 500-foot-long or a 750-foot-long, the 1,000-footers out there working the Great Lakes, they're hauling what it would take maybe 200 schooners to haul. So it's still a very, very busy place. It just doesn't maybe look as busy as it did in what we call at the sanctuary um, the shipwreck century Mm -hmm. from about 1825 which is when the Erie Canal was opened to, to about the early 1900s. And that's when so much was happening in the Great Lakes. It really was the, you know, the railway to the West Coast. Um, this, this was it, right? This is what really populated the area, brought everybody in. I mean, I think if you look at the Torontos, the Buffaloes, the, you know, all the way to the Thunder Bay and the Thunder Bay, um, uh, everything else that's down and around there, this really was the railway that, that got it going, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you think about the, how much more efficient it is to haul goods, thousands and thousands of tons of goods uh, that's fueling the growing industries of our countries. It's it's quite a bit easier through water and more efficient. So um, definitely the, the heart of, of, of the continent um, mm-hmm. and real important. Until there's a leak in gravity. Um, <laughs> so the Ironton, tell me about the Ironton as the boat, the mystery that's around it, because where did you find it and what does it mean? We found it at the bottom of Lake Huron, and um, in a regular uh, way that we search for shipwrecks is using multi-beam sonar. And so it's really kind of a, a boring way to find shipwrecks. You're, you're out there for hours and hours, for days and days. Sometimes you undertake these mapping missions, these survey missions, and don't find anything. Obviously, really more often you don't find anything. So we're out there in the middle of northern Lake Huron doing our mapping missions, with a multi-beam sonar unit mounted to the, the bottom of the, the vessels. Um, we had an autonomous vessel working at this time and then our manned 50-foot uh, research vessel. And you, you mow the lawn, it's called, back and forth until you get a return that looks like something standing proud of the lake bottom. Um, if you look on the images uh, that we shared, there's the mass of the Ironton are still standing upright about 90 feet in the water column. So. When you got that return, it was immediately obvious. Didn't take an archaeologist uh, to see that that was a, a shipwreck at the lake bottom. So when you, I mean, I'm guessing you probably see lots of things when you're looking for something this big. Do you just sort of mark the other things as interesting and then you just have to prioritize? Because, I mean, this one is, like we were talking about the masts sticking up. I mean, it becomes pretty obvious that it's it's not it's special it's different but when you see other things that are weird you just sort of mark them mark them mark them and then just save them for later absolutely it's exact you could be an archaeologist i could be come over (laughs) come and help us map the the bottom of the lakes it's very that's exactly what you said we um you have anomalies and then you go back and you would ground truth them um and sometimes oftentimes i've been on survey missions where there's you know, you're looking for maybe something that looks man-made, like a linear feature or, or maybe a box-like feature. Um, and then we go back and ground truth and it's a hunk of clay mm-hmm. or you know, 
I'm, not many I'm straight right. lines in Mother Nature is not does not have a lot of straight lines, right? So that's usually a pretty good clue, isn't it? It is. It is. That's what we're looking for. Those those straight lines. Those um, something that it couldn't possibly isn't a rock, but. More often than not, you'll go ground truth to spend a lot of time and money to to either send to send eyes down to look at it, whether those eyes are scuba divers or if it's very deep, like the Ironton, you would send a underwater robot or a remotely operated vehicle down to get a look at what's down there. How deep is it? Um, we're not releasing the depth uh, and the exact coordinates just yet. Um, All right, it's, I guess it's a so. process. Um, so people until... don't know go know where to hide and take it, right? <laughs> That's right. That makes well, sense. and we will. Um, uh, the, we just we have shipwrecks in that area that have um, a lot of diving activity on them, right. uh, but they've been fully documented, and so we're uh, we monitor them. Um, but we, you know, we really encourage people to access the shipwreck sites of the sanctuary because right. um, that's how you learn about something and how you care about it. But we just have a process to get so there we first. Will release them. Yeah. yeah. So okay. So let me ask you this: how how deep does Lake Huron get? The deepest point in Lake Huron is 750 feet. So it's deep. It's pretty deep. Okay. So then that that answers the question that this could be, may or may not be, really, really deep. Um, it's fascinating to to sort of hear this. Now, you talk. I like mowing the lawn, so this archaeology <laughs> thing could be a thing for me. Um, but when you find this, you get your hit, you realize what it is. Um, do you know that in your research vessel right now, or do you just find it later in data because i imagine if you're mowing the lawn you get to this place you'd really don't want to finish the lawn you know like <laughs> you don't want to finish the grid so exciting you know that's a great question because it really depends on your mission and it depends on so many things for example um when we are out there mapping we're we're not just looking for shipwrecks we're mapping for all sorts of science and management of the ecosystem so um, it's we we call it map once used many times. So fisheries biologists can use it, geologists, um, ecologists, and so depending on I guess who's paying for the mission, and and really what we're looking for will dictate. Hey, do we stop the vessel and maybe put um, a side scan sonar down to get a little more specific look, a little more detailed look at it, um, or do we right then send those ROVs down? In this case, we we got the returns we. We also were in an area that we suspected we might be pretty close to finding the Ironton. And so we we were quite sure that's what it was, but we um, had to ramp up another expedition. We're interrupted by COVID, but had to ramp up another expedition to return with a, a much bigger vessel that we could deploy a big ROV, a big remotely operated vehicle uh, down. So. There was a bit of a quite a bit of a wait. Uh, but you'd like to dive down and see it right now. How was your patience through that? That must have been anxious at times, just dying to get there. Oh, just dying to get there, and it's it it's just expensive and time consuming to to get those expeditions um, ramped up. Okay, um, so we are talking about shipwrecks and all these things. I have so many questions um, uh, to, to in this. I have so many questions actually. Um, so now, as we Stephanie, as we get into this. Mm -hmm. This particular one, we're not talking about where this is um, yet, but when you dive to yourself, when you get to go to these wrecks, what's that experience like for you? Because there, there's, there must, there's must be a piece to it. There must be a bit of sadness uh -huh. to it. Um, uh -huh. There's this piece of discovery. I mean, I would guess that in, in most of these cases, not everybody made it off okay. Um, uh -huh. 
And, but yet at the same time, you know, there's magic and mystery. So what's that experience like for you? You've summed it up pretty good. Um, the Ironton does have a very tragic tale. Um, five of the sailor, five of the seven sailors went down with the ship. Now those deeper ones that go down in collisions like the Ironton did, uh, and the, and go down very suddenly, that, those are the ones you are going to have more loss of life. Although the Ironton collided with the Ohio in 1894, the Ohio had 16 crew members on board. All of those guys were able to get off um, onto another schooner barge, the Moonlight, and they were all saved. So I, I just want to point out, there's a lot of vessels that don't have that sadness part of it because everybody was able to get off, especially the more shallow ones that are way more accessible. So uh, there's a glass bottom boat company that operates out of um, Thunder Bay River here and it goes to the shallow wrecks just outside off the shores of Alpena. Now these wrecks are 10 feet to 20 feet deep, still quite intact because of the cold fresh water. And since most of them were abandoned or you're close enough to shore that you're able to, everyone was able to be saved, th there's no loss of life on those. Mm -hmm. So I know I kind of skipped past the, what's it like to dive on a shipwreck, which is super fun to talk about because um, it is really exciting. I mean, the moment of discovery, even if I've been to the site 10 times before, which most of the wrecks out here I have, because that's our job to monitor them. Um, but it is, it is very exciting to, be a place that most people aren't going to go. I mean, this is cold water. It takes a lot of uh, special gear. It takes a lot of training. And so that's why we love the programs like the Glass Bottom Boat and like the, um, uh, the technology that we can bring these stories to, to life with the imagery. Um, so many, many more people can still experience that connection that we get to experience while scuba diving. Did the Ohio sink with it or did it go somewhere else before it was like, is it like, are they neighbors? They're pretty close. Um, we discovered the Ohio in 2017, okay. another expedition. Wow, yeah. Okay. And so when we discovered the Ohio, we're like, oh, wow. Because we are, you know, and many people around the Great Lakes who are keen on the the maritime history are, you know, they're looking for these shipwrecks that had these um, headlines back in the, during the shipwreck century, right? They made headlines and they've still never been found. So people know the stories. Um, so there have been a number of people looking for the Ohio, looking for the Ironton. So we knew the history, we knew the newspaper reports, we knew what, there had been a collision, we knew it happened in roughly where. So we find the Ohio and we're like, oh gosh, the Ironton's gotta be close by. Mm -hmm. Back in 2017, we kept looking, kept looking, and we never found the Ironton, we searched all pretty close around there and ran out of, ran out of time. And what the story goes with the, the, the newspaper descriptions, which are very, very detailed. Um, and also eyewitness accounts of the two survivors uh, talk about how Ohio sank almost immediately. They sank very quickly after the collision. And then the Ironton was able to hoist up their sails and gain some control of their vessel and, and drifted off a bit out of um, view of the surrounding other vessels. Hmm. And so it was kind of unknown how, how far did Ironton really drift, um, which direction? So they're, they're kind of close, but not as close as we once thought. Right, so what about, um, what about piracy? I mean, what were, do, do you know what Ironton and Ohio were carrying at the time? And mm -hmm. what about the piracy thing? Um, I mean, going there to look at it's one thing, stealing a knickknack, um, must be tempting, 
but then there are the people that um, do make uh, you know a business of it. So uh, is that all part of this sort of process that you talk about? Um, is it a problem in your world? It is. Um, it's not a huge problem, but it is a problem. I really have faith in our um, the maritime history community here in the Great Lakes and the diving community that 99% know that it's illegal to disturb artifacts that are on state bottomlands. Um, and it's illegal for a good reason. We want those things there for the next diver, for the next generation of explorers, and they're best preserved there. So 99% of the people, I, I really feel, respect that. There are a handful, though, that that don't and um, that's why we have to make sure things are properly documented so we have that whole story to tell that whole um, archaeological site context to to tell for future generations so that's I, I do think that it's that is part of the story but it's not a huge part of the story a, a bigger part of the story is how positive these uh the work that the sanctuary does in partnership with the state of Michigan, how, how positive those things are, are received. And you had asked about what they were carrying. So, like I said, these were working vessels. And um, as far as piracy back in the day, you, you wouldn't see a lot of uh, piracy for bulk cargoes like the Ohio was carrying. The Ohio was carrying, I believe, a, a, a thousand tons of grain. And so they were fully loaded. Maybe one of the reasons they sank much quicker than the Ironton the Ironton was light, so it was empty, and it was being towed by another steamer. So you had the steamer, the Kershaw, is heading north, and it's towing two schooner barges. So these were real typical um, system used in Great Lakes shipping where it called the consort system. So you'd have one powerhouse steamer, and he'd be towing up to seven schooner barges, and they'd be loaded with freight. So it's a, just more efficient way to haul a lot more cargo, which means more money. And so the Kershaw was hauling the Moonlight and the Ironton. And it was a very windy, clear, but windy night. And so lots of waves. And the Kershaw lost power. And so the Moonlight and the Ironton are like, this is dangerous being tied to this, this vessel that's out of control. So they cut their tow lines and that's when things went very awry and the, the Ironton with its tow line cut got, went off course. The Ohio's coming south. Once again, you know, we're in a busy shipping lane. We already talked about all the activity and the commerce happening in the Great Lakes. It was an interstate, you know, of traffic. And the um, Ironton's off course. Here comes the big Ohio and they collide. It's fascinating. So you're excited about um, obviously what's next. What is next? I mean, the positive Ew. here is that there is a, a bit of a punctuation point at the end of the story of the Ironton. More to be discovered, I'm sure. But what what really is next? What's next is further documentation um, and monitoring of the Ironton and the other 99 shipwrecks that we have. And then the creation of um, outreach products and stories and exhibits that we can share. We have a, a visitor center here in downtown Alpena, uh, 10,000 square foot maritime museum, uh, free and open year round. That's that's wonderful to uh, visit and you can hop on a life-size schooner and experience what it's like to be in a storm in the Great Lakes. Um, really great place. And so we'll have an exhibit 
there about the Ironton, um, adding to our other exhibits about other shipwrecks. And so we'll also continue mapping. Um, we have mapped only about 15% in, in hot, and when I say map, like in high resolution, where we get the, the fine detail of what the lake bottom looks like. So we, we're going to keep looking, I guess, is the answer. Um, there's more shipwrecks to, to be found. In fact, we estimate that within the 4,300 square miles of the sanctuary, that there's at least 100 more to be found. Oh, wow. And that's only in your pocket of the That's world. right. Wow. That's right. This is fascinating. Will you keep us um, updated as you get back there, you guys get to document all of it, um, share more information, what happens, because I would love to share this story, because not only, I mean, we have Edmund Fitzgerald is in sort of this, such high regard in Canadian folklore and music and all those pieces of our of our history. So I think this touches most Canadians in what, what we hear and with the proximity, um, it's fascinating. Please, please keep in touch with us. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. We also accidentally stumbled into a playlist of songs from a very special era in Ryan's life. Ryan speaks to his mom's minivan as this very special place that he uh, rode in the back. And I don't know what you probably watch, some sort of alphabet show or something on some tablet. And mom was rocking no. out in the front seat. No? No tablets. Portable DVD players. I'm not that, that young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we accidentally said, well, we should build a playlist of Ryan's mom's minivan songs. And that's what we're leaning into here on The Shift. And with that being said, we are leaning into the exact same era for Throwback Thursday, Flashback Friday here on The Shift as well. So let's get started with the very important establishment of one thing. What kind of minivan, Rye? Oh, it's the one, the only, the Soccer Moms Special. The Grand, the Grand, the Dodge Grand Caravan. Nothing but the best, hey? Nothing, Nothing but, the, but best the best for Michelle. No, it sucks, but man, oh man, did it get the job done. So that's what it is. You got to imagine as we listen to these songs and we get ourselves into this throwback Thursday, flashback Friday of Ryan's mom's minivan, Grand Caravan style. We are talking nothing but the best plastic on the dash. <laughs> Everywhere. Everything gray. Interiors all gray. things gray. Every shade <laughs> of gray you could imagine. Gray carpet. Gray headliner. Gray plastic handles. Gray seats. Gray pattern inside the gray seats. Gray steering wheel. Unbelievable. Green right on lights the on the dash. <laughs> oh, yeah. the That's a great point. Yeah. What was with that? In that's all cars were green forever. Yeah. The green light up display. Yeah. That. Yeah, I remember when I got my first car that was not green, and that was my Volkswagen was red, burgundy, indigo. It was indigo. That's what it was. Oh, that was so cool because yeah. it finally was not a green interior light. All right, so let's get started with the minivan and the age when it flourished the early 2000s. Since Dodge Caravan's easy outroller seats have wheels that pop down... Reconfiguring the interior is an exercise in convenience, not an exercise in exercise. 
why don't all the other guys make it this easy? Go configure. Now get a thousand cash allowance or 1.9 financing on Caravan. Go configure. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> That's I not like bad, that. eh? Hey, I like that. That's pretty good. Okay, so uh, by the year 2000, almost 1.4 million minivans were sold across the entire market. After peaking in 2000, minivan sales have declined. Well, hmm. the good news is, is all the cool factor of the drivers has increased. The minivans, for the most part, have been discontinued, with the exception of a couple that are still around. Since 2005, more than 13 minivan models have been retired, probably because they were seen as being very, very lame. Ryan wrote that. What else is going on in the minivans ruling the world? We have a throwback Thursday packed with 2000 nostalgia minivan style. Before we get there, though, I did want to sort of grab one of the songs that's um, okay. that, um, that rocked out in Ryan's mom's minivan. And uh, this you. is a little bit later, actually, of the era. It would be Pink. Now, some of us are going to connect to these. um, This is a Dodge Caliber song. Oh, yeah. Burlington, Ontario, driving Lakeshore Drive. Mom blasting, blasting pink. Really, eh? Okay, um, we can go back to earlier than that. I think it would be uh, 2000, probably. Definitely a minivan song. Oh, this is such a minivan song. Right? Superman. Yeah. Oh. This is like a dead genre of like soft rock. It's well, this one crunches pretty hard. I, I've made that mistake, too, where I'm like, oh, it's kind of mellow. It's really not. Uh, this was uh, Nickelback, How You Remind Me. I'm surprised it's not on your list, by the way. Yeah, it's more of a dad song. Was U2 and Nickelback were, and like Theory of a Dead Man, uh, Finger yeah. 11. That's a little bit more dad's car than mom's. Oh, yeah, Finger 11. Yeah. Finger 11 was later, though. Yes, yeah, that's when um, we were living in Ontario. Okay, so <laughs> minivan songs is such an awesome and terrible idea at the same time. I know, right? Okay. I love it. <laughs> so how about some commercials? What was on TV back in that era? What was Ryan watching on his portable DVD player strapped to the back of the headrest of his mom's seat? Well, uh, sing the kajingle. Sing the kajingle. Kajingle? Is that something I'm missing? Or? We can sing the jingle. Oh, sing the, the jingle. K is silent. And- the K is well, you know, in the I'm actually writing this as eight-year-old Ryan, who still oh, can't really? spell all that well. So I'm, I'm oh. in, I'm in character here. You've in come a long way, then. <laughs> That's a typo. Walked, in, walked right into that one. Uh, all right, maybe you know the jingle. Just hit it. I have no idea what that is. Yop, Yoptimal drink, the yogurt drink. Mm -hmm. This commercial just has like these teenagers Mm -hmm. still asleep, but their Mm -hmm. mouths are moving like over exaggeratedly to that song. 
and it was on YTV every day, especially on Saturday. But it's just, I don't know, that jingle, man, just it's, we all know it. If you're like, if you're in your twenties, you know, that song. Okay. Uh, uh, Jono, do you know that song? Yeah, I remember when I was watching YTV, every time uh, during the commercial breaks for Spongebob, they would always play that song so much See? that I've memorized oh, it in man. my head. See, I don't think I understand what influenced your generation. This is not making me confident for the future of our country. Okay, uh, Yoplay claims that the Yop was the first drinkable yogurt in Canada. Mmm. <laughs> that sounds great. They're pretty good. Okay, um misinformation is something that continues to be present in Canada. In the 2000s, the government launched a PSA hoping to prevent that. It features the very, this is a good commercial. I remember this commercial. The very, a lot of people were surprised that this wasn't real. The very, very fake, but very, very awesome house hippo. It's nighttime in a kitchen just like yours. All is quiet. Or is it? The North American House Hippo is found throughout Canada and the eastern United States. House hippos are very timid creatures and are rarely seen, but they will defend their territory if provoked. They come out at night to search for food, water, and materials for their nests. The favorite foods of the house hippo are chips, raisins, and the crumbs from peanut butter on toast. They build their nests in bedroom closets, using lost mittens, dryer lint, and bits of string. The nests have to be very soft and warm. House hippos sleep about 16 hours a day. That looked really real, but you knew it couldn't be true, didn't you? That's why it's good to think about what you're watching on TV and ask questions, kind of like you just did. A message from Concerned Children's Advertisers. That was the longest commercial ever. But it was, it like the visuals, you know, they did a really good job of making the hippos look very real within the, the space. You know, the nest, eating the peanut butter. The peanut butter, I remember, always looked so appetizing. And I couldn't have it because my brother's allergic. And you would look, you'd be like, huh, look at that. And, oh, and it yeah, it was, a good, it was a great ad. We should run those same ads today that say, think about yeah. what you read online. Yeah, it's aged very well. It has aged very well. Um, the Hidden World of the House Hippo was the winner of the Golden Marble Award in the category of the Best Public Service Advertising in 1999, which also wins the award for the longest title of any award ever given. Given. <laughs> uh, this award recognizes outstanding achievement in kids' advertising. I just, yeah, I think about reels today that are seven seconds long mm-hmm. and then think, how in the world would a kid watch a one minute commercial and stay tuned to it? That's amazing to me. Yeah. All right. It's uh, the early 2000s here on Throwsback Thursday, Flashback Friday. This is amazing to me because um, it's a whole new perspective on this era that I've never seen before. Songs from Ryan's mom's minivan. This is later. This has got to be a, a Dodge Caliber, too. Yeah. It kind of blurs. I was pretty young when we moved to Ontario, so it... I was on 101.5 when this one came out. I can tell yeah. you what station I was on when these songs came out. What <laughs> yeah, you station. can. Yeah. Yeah, I was on 92.1 when Kryptonite came out. Uh, who I was on... Uh, who knew I was 101.5? That's funny, eh? 
Hey, see? All right, so songs from Ryan's mom's uh, minivan. Bare Naked Ladies came out with more music, and it was very American. It wasn't very Canadian at all. That kind of sucked, because I missed the Canadian fun versions of their songs, because they did so many great, fun, playful songs, and then they just made a boatload of money. They're good songs. I'm. Yeah, this isn't a bad just, song. Uh, this is a good song. This, I don't know. It's the perfect time of year. Somewhere far away from here I feel fine enough, I guess I don't want to get to the underwear part It's a long ways away, though Considering everything's a mess Yeah, I just made you say underwear There's a restaurant down the street Don't remember that part of the song? No Where hungry people like to eat No, I don't remember that at all I could walk, but I'll just drive Okay, now I gotta find it <laughs> Put the sprinkler on the lawn. It's very repetitive. I don't even know what this song's about. I just know. Yep, this was in the minivan. Here it is. Take a drink right from the hole. No, it's not anything. <laughs> it's the same thing over and over. And change into some drier clothes. And do it again. Climb the stairs up to my room. No, not this one. <laughs> Wait, let's give me that. Sleep no, let's give me that. I gotta find it. We've committed this much to it now, so. Tell if I exist. Pack the car and leave this town. No. We gotta do it. We're listening the whole song. We have to. Notice that I'm not around. I gotta. I could hide out under there. Oh. I just made you say underwear. There, see. We did it. Yes. All right, just so you know, that is not efficient radio things by Shane. Nope. That's what that is. Okay, um, in the Let spirit of <laughs> moving on, uh, commercials, uh, beer commercials, uh, were these on YTV too? Is that where you saw them? Uh, no. No, these were not on YTV. These would have, when would I have watched these? Because I definitely saw, I saw one of these commercials a lot on TV. Uh, probably History Channel. Watch, I watched History Channel when I was pretty young, so that's probably where. All right. Uh, this is one of the greatest Canadian ads of all time. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm not a lumberjack or a fur trader, and I don't live in an igloo or eat blubber or own a dog sled, and I don't know Jimmy, Sally, or Susie from Canada, although I'm certain they're really, really nice. I have a prime minister, not a president. I speak English and French, not American. And I pronounce it about, not a boot. I can proudly sew my country's flag on my backpack. I believe in peacekeeping, not policing. Diversity, not assimilation. And that the beaver is a truly proud and noble animal. The toque is a hat. The Chesterfield is a coach. And it is pronounced said, not saying said. Canada is the second largest landmass. I feel like that commercial did not age well from the perspective of, you know, I, I believe in, you know, not assimilating and all the things that have happened yeah. with in Canada now. Yeah, Canadian nationalism is a very bizarre, we should have a segment on that, bizarre thing, because it's very different from most countries' nationalism. And uh, 
I feel like you could do this ad again in a way better way, but like I remember seeing it for the first time because even as a kid, Canada felt very small on like the world stage. It's just, you know, I was like, I like being Canadian and seeing this ad where it's a guy mm. screaming at the top of his lungs. I was like, yes, Canada. It was just, mm -hmm. yeah, it was patriotic, well, I, felt, felt fun. If you rewrote that today, it would be like, in Canada, where budgets balance themselves and groceries cost more than anywhere else. Like, I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that, you know, where our elections, we can't trust them anymore. Like, I feel like it would be a completely different rewrite if we rewrote that into today's world. I, I do have to proudly say, though, the only award I've ever won for voicing a commercial was uh, a takeoff of that. Um, so that was, yeah, that brings back memories for me too. Budweiser, that was, uh, Molson Budweiser had their own, uh, little trick up their sleeves, which went incredibly viral as well. Hello. Hey, who? What's up? Numby. Just watching the game. Having a bud. What's up with you? Nothing. Watching the game. Having a bud. True. True. What's that? Yo, who's that? Yo! Yo, pick up the phone! Hello? What's that? What's that? Yo, where's Dookie? Yo, Dookie! Yo. What's that? What's that? Hold on. Hello? So what's up, B? Watching the game, having a bud. True. True. That True. was iconic. Uh, it mm -hmm. also was a perfect intro when we used to play Four Non Blondes, What's Going On. Oh, that, that would have been fun. I like that. <laughs> uh, throwback to Ryan's mom's minivan songs. The playlist is posted for you, by the way. At um at shiftheads.ca, the Facebook group. Okay, so I want to touch on a couple of the weird ones. Uh Lifehouse hanging by a moment was rocking <laughs> Ryan's mom's minivan. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of emotion in some of these songs. I'm hearing it. Um Rocked Hard. Um, although this was the mellow song from Buck Cherry. I uh yeah, there's I saw Buck Cherry last year. Open for Alice Cooper. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Really? Eh? <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, it, it, it was so bad. Well, they were terrible at the time. Like, let's... yes, but it's it's pretty funny to look back on. This is a very mom song, yeah. I would say, of all of them. My mom used to hate John Mayer, though. Really? She thought she was he was a playboy, which he definitely was. And then she, I think, recently has kind of gone back to his music and been like, "Yeah, he was it's pretty good." good absolutely was okay um back in the day okay and then um we've got to do the hoobs because ryan forgot that there's a band called hoobastank <laughs> dumbest name for a band ever oh, oh i'm man. so happy my mom reminded me of this one which is uh and I think we should probably acknowledge this one because it's a good example of how time has changed over the years, um, which would be, of course, it's not the original, but 
um, the, the the chicks, which mm-hmm. have recently changed their name from the Dixie Chicks, yeah, um, to the Chicks out of respect for that conversation, um, the, their their version of Landslide. Yep, like this was. Did you sleep in this minivan a lot? Because this playlist is really mellow, dude. Like I feel like. I, like you talk about these great times in your mom's minivan, I think your mom was so sick of her children that she just tried to play music that put you guys to sleep. <laughs> no, well, maybe. Come I, on, if just... I if you ask me though, that's probably my mom's favorite song. If I oh, if sure. I had well, to it's a, guess, it's a great song. But just let's yeah, for a second. A I'm gonna cover. put a. I'm just gonna play a bunch of these in it just quickly. This is. Th- I think this is. We figured it out. Ryan's mom was prior to put Ryan to sleep. We got Natalie and Berulia. We got the fray. Don't right. come at me with the phrase. This is an amazing song. I know we got for train. We got Iconic big yellow song. taxi. Okay, yeah, this one puts me to sleep. Great song. Um, we've got Chris <laughs> Daughtry. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. That's pretty energetic. Yeah. Um, we got some Buble. Right. Like, this was at the oh same my... time as Pink. Oh Close man, two. five for fighting. Mm-hmm. Ryan, stop <laughs> talking. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I. This is Google Dolls. Like I even. That's picked, what happened. We figured it out. Do you know that song has over a billion streams on Spotify? I believe that it's a great song. No, well, it's a there you go. Song. There's a flashback. Maybe that gives you some insight into Ryan. Um, and uh, I have a whole new level of empathy and compassion for your mother. Yeah. That's really what this boils down to. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Right, Ed. Some fun stories. That was terrible. 877-399-9898. That is the phone number for you if you would like to contribute to said stories and let us know your thoughts. Ryan O'Donnell's in downtown Calgary. I'm Shane Hewitt. I'm in Calgary, too. Different place, though. Are you okay with smart cars? Smart Smart. cars. Wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Let's do that again, Jono. Are you okay with smart cars? Uh, That's a typo. Oof, that one's a little ironic, isn't it? Did you just did you just typo smart? Oh, I am so smart. S-M-R-T. You didn't even spell it right for the song. <laughs> S-M-A-T. You know like even, even Homer smells, spells it in a way that's smarter than that. Homer is my spirit animal. I mean, we get the, we get the, uh, we yeah. get the typos in our blood, you know? Well, since we're here, are you okay with smart cars? Uh, yeah, I think... I'm okay with the idea of smart cars, you know, like these tiny little good on gas cars to get you around town, but they don't make much sense in North America. They make sense. Oh, you're thinking like the little ones, like a smart car is the brand. Oh, the little, the little one. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah, they did. They did. If we're talking cars that are like high tech, uh, that's kind of what I was Yeah. It's cool. I think one of the coolest things is the top down parking camera where they use mirrors so it, it's like a video game you can see the car from a bird's eye view when you're parking it's yeah. pretty sweet the the thing is i feel like it will make us incredibly dependent upon those kinds of trip 
tips and tricks. So if something works and then you don't even know how to use your car because 13 wires that are hooked up to kind of like a gadget break and it just shuts the whole thing down and then it gets more expensive to fix it. Well, when they teach you how to fly an airplane, they still teach you how to fly an airplane without electronics. So that's a thing. Yeah. Um, and you know that top-down camera thing is not really real, right? Like it's just an actual drawing of the car that looks realistic with a bunch of little cameras around the outside. Like it's actually not a top-down view. Well, yeah, of course it's not actually. It's not like the car launches a little drone out of the roof. It's just, well, it's I don't just know. You're a millennial. Car. You might believe that. I do not believe that. When it you take your driver's test, you're also not trip. allowed to use your backup camera. You actually have to back up the car and look over your shoulder and do it properly. Yeah. So in theory, you're supposed to theory I, I the notion that that one day we could have these flying cars that all talk to each other so they don't bang into each other that's kind of cool to me i think that's all yeah. right um but driving them our own cars is really cool too i just don't think we're there yet cars no. are getting smarter without a doubt um especially electric ones they've got all kinds of technology in it as ryan would say technology. teslas don't really need a key anymore most cars don't really need a key anymore except they charge you a thousand dollars per key to get it programmed um, you can use your handy-dandy apps on your phone to get into your car. I could do that in my old Chevy. Um, but what happens when your app gets it wrong, right? What happens, like, how does it work when, because I could unlock my car, but I had to go through the Internet when the Rogers outage happened, and then you didn't have any phone connection. Can you not use your phone to get in the car? Do you have to use a Bluetooth thing? I don't know. But what happens when the app glitches? A Vancouver Tesla owner says he accidentally got into the wrong car and drove away while using the app on his phone. Rajesh Randev says he noticed something wasn't quite right with the car, but only discovered his mistake when the car's actual owner texted him. I, I start driving it. I noticed there was a crack on the windshield. And then I called my wife. What happened to the windshield? Then came a series of texts from a number he didn't know. Next message was, you are driving the wrong Tesla car. And indeed he was. And what happened was, uh, I think there was two cars, Tesla cars, which are parked side by side. And because I was in a hurry, and then I jumped into somebody's car. Well, that's a harmless mistake. What worries Randev is why the Tesla app on his phone was apparently able to unlock another man's car, let him start it up, and then drive all over East Vancouver. His understanding is the whole point of Teslas is they're smarter than that. And he tried to contact them. I was surprised one, like a few of their emails bounced back. As of Thursday, no one from Tesla had gotten back to him. And we didn't fare much better. Reaching out to their press office, we got the same response. Sorry, mailbox full. I was surprised how I was able to drive somebody else's car by mistake. Your car is safe. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. everything is okay. Yeah, yeah. The other Tesla owner appeared more bemused than alarmed, as were the Vancouver police, who apparently declined to issue a case number, only advice to watch what happens next, which for Randev is hopefully an explanation from Tesla HQ. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Am I the only one that... Have you heard the story on Twitter about the guy who was locked out of his computer and so he'd at tweeted elon musk to find out if he still had a job and uh, they didn't yeah. yeah and they didn't know if that he ever worked there like the the fact that you can't get a hold of someone at tesla and they bounce back as the email box is full and then in the other company 
this guy doesn't even it's like there's no hr and so like this guy is trying to find out if he still has a job it seems to me like this world is a crumbling down for i don't know to not enough people or bad design or whatever but something's going on here um i i can't be the only one that notices that oh no you're 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 really not the only one it's too bad because the cars are cool they could do some pretty sweet things but uh when they glitch it's pretty staggering what can go wrong and even if you take out all of that the build quality i saw a video of a mechanic running his finger along the trim of the car and the front fender is completely off center from the rest of the car fresh out of the factory (laughs) there are lots of cars that in all defense that you're right and they they say the build quality initial quality is quite terrible um especially if you're going Mm -hmm. to the older ones like 2014 15 they just don't stand the test of time now in all fairness though there are other many other cars that are like that there's lots of guys do those things on corvettes and ferraris and things like that too but um, to your point, yes, they are very much on that list. It's an awful lot of money for a car that doesn't seem to work. And the thought that they um, that someone could just drive it away like that, that's concerning. Very concerning. Unless, of course, you're, it's kind of like going to a party, and then you leave your shoes at the front door, and then you leave the party, and you're like, those are nicer shoes, my size, and then people would steal someone else's shoes. I mean, maybe that's what you do. That's how you upgrade your Tesla. You just take the the one that's got the prettier color and more features. Maybe that's a Tesla thing. I don't know. Are you okay with dog parks? Dog parks. I had never been to a dog park up until maybe two years ago when Laura got their golden retriever, Cora. And I always felt a little like uneasy going to them. I'm like, I'm going to get taken out by one of these dogs. They're just mm off leash they're gonna rampage all over the place but no not really they just as long as they're well trained they just run around and have fun chase the same balls and you know run after the same stick and and just have a good time and it's a good exercise you get to run after the dog i i'm a big fan of the dog park found a stick on the ground (laughs) yeah exactly i don't like dog parks i really don't i um there's always that one dog owner that doesn't train their dog or doesn't care, doesn't pick up. And I find them chaotic and things like the, the, the what do they call it? The kennel cough and some of those things. I mean, I would rather go to a field where there's a dog or two, introduce yourself to the owner, say, hey, do you want to play? And then the, the dogs run off and they play together and have some fun. I just, I find that to be a little bit more, I don't know, better. My dog is also very, very large and yeah. um, other people get scared by it. Right, they're like, "Oh, you're my little puppy." It's like, trust me, my dog is more scared of your dog. So I don't know, um, but they're fun. I mean, it's good. Uh, get people outside. One thing dog parks have, uh, when dogs are there, anyway. Hopefully, only when dogs are there is lots of barking. City of Toronto wants to change that. Less barking. A sign posted by the City of Toronto warned dog owners to not allow your dogs to bark and disturb the neighborhood, and sort of shocked those who go to the dog park. I think it's kind of actually funny considering everything else that's happening in the city. Toronto is the construction capital of North America. And, you know, why are we going after barking dogs instead of, you know, hammering hammers or squealing tires, right? So that's Nathan Long, and he's not alone in thinking that preventing barking is kind of dumb. This is lunacy. (laughs) We're at a dog park, so I think the likelihood of there would be 
some form of barking or a little bit of commotion is is highly likely. The city of Toronto says the signs were posted in late January. Ready to go? Ashley Cole has lived across the street for three years. She says even with her balcony door open, you don't hear the dogs. We have construction all around us. We have sirens going on on Adelaide all the time and traffic. I just think that um, the noise of the dog park and dogs barking is nothing compared to any of the other city noises. Lee Talhatuka noted the city noise sometimes drowns out what is happening at the dog park. I hear garbage trucks. I hear traffic. I mean, I hear the odd, like, siren from a cop car, an ambulance. It happens. We're in the city. It's expected. So, in a statement to Global News on Wednesday morning, spokesperson for the City of Toronto said the city needs to balance the needs of a range of park users and local communities. Signage was installed at this location to remind users at the off-leash area to be considerate of nearby residents. Although barking is expected at off-leash areas, excessive barking can be disruptive to neighbors. Is excessive barking like excessive profits? Because we should ask Jugmeet Singh what that line in the sand is. So how much barking is too much barking? Uh, the concept of excessive barking uh, makes no sense to Mr. Long, who noted that often dog owners are stopped uh, stopping by for 15 to 30 minutes. There's no definitive, no definition of excessive. The mm-hmm. sign was down in less than 24 hours. I don't know who took it down, but I'm willing to bet it was just some random person who didn't like it. Just saying. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 